Hello, my name is Lisa Hellum, and I'm an executive editor here at Bloomberg Law. Welcome to a special bonus episode of our Black Lawyer Speak series. Today, we're going to be hearing from a lawyer known to many as the Dean of Black Law Partners at major law firms. That's Ben Wilson, the outgoing chairman of Beverage and Diamond. Wilson announced his retirement in October after 35 years with the firm and 45 years in legal practice. Wilson joined Beverage and Diamond in 1986, becoming the firm's first Black partner. He was named chairman in 2017. But Wilson's impact stretches far beyond his firm. To many Black and other diverse lawyers across the country, the Harvard Law grad has been a mentor, a coach, and a friend. In 2008, Wilson founded the Diverse Partners Network, which will continue to lead post-retirement, newly renamed as the Diverse Lawyers Network. He also founded the African American Managing Partners Network, a tight-knit network of African American leaders of major law firms that he started in 2009 in Washington. I spoke with Ben about his storied career path, and we started off chatting about the advice he gives most often to attorneys who sought it over the years. He also spoke about the experiences that shaped him growing up in the segregated South in Jackson, Mississippi. So, Mr. Ben Wilson, Chairman of Beverage and Diamond, we are so excited to chat with you today on such an August and you know, in, in many ways, historic occasion, which is uh, your recent announcement of your retirement. And um, today, I just wanted to kind of go back through some of the high points of your career, some of your influences. I know you and I have talked many times, so the biggest challenge of today was finding something we hadn't already um, addressed, but there's just so much inspiration to so many and so many that you've affected over the course of your career. Um, So I want to kind of start with that. You know, in addition to being chairman of Beverage and Diamond, you served as a mentor to many diverse lawyers. Um, They include law firm leaders, they include in-house counsel, and even more junior lawyers. And I'm curious, um, just sort of wanted to unpack what it's like to be, you know, a mentor and advisor to so many. Um, What is the question that you've gotten most often from people over these years? And, you know, what is some of the advice that you share with some of the people that come to you? Well, it's it's fascinating because so often, Elisa, first of all, thank you for this opportunity and, um, and thank you for this forum. And I don't know that there's anything about me that's historic, but suffice it to say, I appreciate uh, any opportunity to talk about the future and hopefully uh, continue to have a positive impact. In terms of the recurring question, the most common question I get is when a person is at a crossroads and it could be a crisis, they may have lost a job or their time at their firm or their company is coming to an end or they're trying to find that first job. And and there is that doubt uh, Lisa, that we all have, if we're honest about, did I make the right choice? Is the law really for me? Is this firm or or is this company or is this government agency where I should be? You know, is this my calling, if you will? And so uh, that is ultimately the challenge. And almost always I ask a series of questions. 
And the first question of the person is, what is their dream? What do they want to do? And it's fascinating, Lisa, because sometimes the person skips over the question and they say, I need a job. I need this. I need that. And I said, I get the urgency, but and we're going to get to that. But what's your dream? And what's surprising is sometimes even at a very early age, people have uh, uh, forgotten how to dream. And and I um, uh, you know, you have the rest of your life to be uh, uh, realistic. But I I like to remind people uh, to think about what it, why they came to the law in the first place, what it is they want to do with it. And and then think practically, what are the three or four things? What are the steps that they can take to achieve that goal? What is most gratifying is when I speak to someone and they tell me about their success. It can be three months, three years, 30 years later. And I may have, I will confess, sometimes have con- forgotten the conversation, but they've recalled it and it, it's important to them. And it's what they would determine as a dividing line, a, a defining moment, if you will, and where they resolve that they would make a change. And and that's the goal is for people to see the power they have within themselves to to make choices and to impact not only their lives, but the lives of others. Awesome. Well, I'm sure sort of in that spirit that this is a time of a lot of reflection. Um, I was thinking back to a conversation we had a few years ago for a story. And I asked you about what it was like to grow up in the segregated South, you know, and you talked um, about your parents and their huge influence on you. Your dad, who was a realist, but also had this enduring hope. Your mom, who was a dreamer, I think you said, quote, she saw things not simply as they were, but as they might be. So I'm just interested to know how the worldview pushed you um, and sort of what would they, what do you think that they would tell you as you are standing on the precipice of this conclusion of this part of your career? Well, I hope they would say that uh, so far so good. And uh, I'll tell you a humorous story. Uh, Lisa, when I was graduating from the eighth grade, my father had a friend who said, Harrison, you must be very proud of your son. My father turned and looked at him. He said, so far. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it was his way of reminding me and himself that I was only 13 and there was a long way to go. And uh, but um, my parents obviously very special to me, changed my whole life, impacted my life even today, but but they were not unique in that their dreams were that similar to that of other African-American parents, whether they were in Detroit or where I was from, Jackson, Mississippi, in all parts, north, south, east, or west. And they knew that we had this ability. The question was, would we have this chance? My parents had come out of the Depression. They'd come out of the Second World War. Uh, in the case of my father, he'd seen the country and seen a little bit of the world in a way that he had not seen it before. And I think they realized, uh, those uh, veterans of the Second World War, that uh, they could do anything that any other man could do. Now, I think they probably knew that any old way. 
but it's but when you're 18, 19, 22, a chance to measure yourself against others uh, allowed them, I think, to dream uh, bigger. So that's how that's how I uh, that's how I remember. They also believed in service, and again, uh, this idea that you had this talent and you had this ability and you had an obli- obligation to share it. So my mother always talked about the parable of the talents and, you know, not wasting the, the talents that one has been uh, given. Uh, they had faith. And my parents' faith was no better than anybody else's faith. But uh, what I liked is they had faith in me. They had faith in each other. And uh, and so that made all the difference in the world. And um, so... Uh, so I owe everything to them. And um, I used to say, my mother can see farther than I can see. And they uh, they had a vision. And uh, fortunately for me, their vision came true. And they did everything within their power to, to get us ready for that change. And I'm grateful. And I'm grateful to that generation of parents but I also had an opportunity, I was speaking to a friend today, and he reminded me of something that Vernon Jordan certainly said to me and said to others, and he said, each generation has this obligation to the next. And if our generation uh, does not fulfill its responsibilities, the next generation is going to find it even tougher. And who wants to regress, you know? Who wants to take one step forward and three steps back? And so... I hope that in a small way, we have paved the way for those who follow and they will far exceed us and hopefully um, put the next generation closer to equality, closer to freedom and closer to that opportunity uh, that our parents uh, wanted so much for all of us. When you described your mother you talked about her being a dreamer, like we just talked about. Um, but I would contend that those of us, those of my generation and and those who have gone before would contend that you have been a dreamer. You've had a clear vision for uh, what the legal profession might look like if we only try, if we put the work behind it. Um, so I'm interested to know what has sustained your hope, you know, for change um, in the profession over all of these years? Well, what has sustained me is the fact that others encountered far greater obstacles and they chose to go forward anyway. They had an even if mentality. You know, this old the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they would not worship a false god. And they said their father would come rescue them, but they said even if he didn't, they would still not alter their faith. And so, um, so I've mentioned to you people like Wiley Branton and what he did uh, right there in Little Rock and what he did all over Arkansas, AP Turo in New Orleans, and that famous uh, Norman Rockwell painting of the little black girl in the pristine white dress on her way to school, books and rulers in hand. A racial epithet scrawled against the wall, an errant tomato on the ground, escorted to school by four headless U.S. Marshals. 
Red Gray, 24 years old, representing Martin Luther King Jr., 24? Ben also said he drew inspiration from those like Vernon Jordan, then a young clerk for Georgia civil rights lawyer Donald Hollowell, who helped Charlene Hunter Galt and Hamilton Holmes integrate the University of Georgia. And there you see a young Vernon Jordan uh, in the prime of his youth walking with these two young people. Mr. Luby, who was in Nashville, see Alexander Luby, who represented John Lewis, the other Fisk University students who were uh, sitting in and who were freedom riders. And uh, so to me, their examples, lawyers, uh, their strength and their courage. And I often speak of uh, Constance Baker Motley, the first woman I ever met with three names. And when she represented James Meredith, at, who was integrating the University of Mississippi and Meredith's then wife was my student teacher. And I thought she must be a physical giant because she would do what men would not do. And she was an intellectual giant. She wasn't a physical giant, but she was an intellectual giant. And I realized a size did not equal courage or intelligence. And uh, um, and so, so to me, those were um, amazing examples. And then I think of the young people, those college students, those uh, uh, young adults like James Cheney and Andrew Goodman and, and Mickey Schwerner and how they didn't have to, well, James Cheney was from Meridian, uh, but the others did not have to come from New York. And not only did they risk their lives, they gave their lives. So so the, the examples are, are really legion. And, uh, and quite frankly, when I think of hundreds of unknown people whose names are lost to history, uh, I would be uh, a coward if I couldn't lift my voice uh, in, a, in this comparatively safe era uh, when they did so much when their lives were at risk. So, so that's, that's really where that comes from. You know, and um, uh, that's where that comes from. Thank you, Ben. Um, so after retirement, you said that you're planning to continue your work. Um, obviously, in addition to being a chairman, you have been a mentor, you have been a diversity advocate and change maker, um, starting the Diverse Partners Network and maintaining that, and also the African American Managing Partners Network. Um, tell us about some of the work that remains to be done with both of those groups. And we have a third group, our African American General Counsel Network. Yes, sir. <laughs> and, uh, and so, so let's talk about each one. One, we called it the Diverse Partners Network, but we're going to change our name to Diverse Lawyers Network because not everyone practices in law firms. And law firms are important, but they're not the only important aspect of the practice of law. And uh, so our goal was to tell their stories in our newsletter that comes out weekly. And uh, so when someone wins a case or someone receives a promotion, we want someone other than their mother to know about their success. And people clamor, Lisa, to have their story and their achievements recognized. And I'm very proud of that. We have a section that discusses uh, upcoming events. So if one were raising money for students at Fisk University, as an example, uh, we're uh, 
Uh, my parents worked for a while. My father did. That could be included. Uh, and uh, and then finally, we list live legal jobs, over 300 each week. And people find opportunities either from entry level to general counsel of a Fortune 10 company. And um, uh, there's been a great deal of interest in board service by women, by people of color. And sometimes when people speak of women, they don't think about black women. And, uh, uh, and of course, uh, there are black women too, and other diverse women. And so we wanna make certain that they are represented on board. So working with others, like our friends at um, uh, Take Your Seat, it's Jerusha Stewart, or our friends out at, out at Santa Clara University, uh, we're Thane Kreiner and uh, uh, wonderful man uh, Barry Williams and others are uh, helping to train, prepare cohorts of black corporate directors. So these are some of the things that we want to change in terms of work that we have yet to do. Uh, there are more stories to be told. Uh, we're, we're going to put a, a facelift on our uh website so that people can use it. Um, Lisa, we developed a list of recommended attorneys. Sometimes I've actually had meetings. I had a meeting with a Fortune 10 GC and he said, Ben, I know Ted Wells. Who else do I need to know? And, uh, and I could have given him three names, but my mother always said, do a thorough job. So I went home and I prepared a list of over 300 names of African-American attorneys and over 30 practice areas. I think we're over 500 now because that company used antitrust lawyers and securities lawyers and IP lawyers and uh, white collar criminal defense lawyers. And there are diverse lawyers. There are African-American lawyers who practice in all of those areas. And I wanted people to be able to find them when they were looking. And we're doing that. Ben also discussed the tools that law firms and companies are using to ensure they consider diverse candidates in their hiring, like the Mansfield rule. He also spoke about the work ahead to make sure that diverse attorneys get the origination credit they've earned for the work that they bring in the door. The other great challenge, I think, at least in the private sector, is to make certain that uh, following the National Football League's example, uh, my friend Paul Tagliabu with another friend, Tom Williamson, developed the Rooney Rule. And, uh, and with this Mansfield Rule, companies and law firms are making certain that they are looking at diverse slates in their hiring, in their promoting within the company, uh, in setting up their various management teams. We want to do more of that. We want to ensure that when we are going on pitches, that we're presenting diverse teams. But diverse lawyers not only want to go on the pitch and they not only want to do the work, but they want credit for some of that work. And I believe if you help bake the pie, you ought to get a slice of that pie. And so uh, that's another frontier that we need to, we need to address. And, and I believe that we are. And uh, so, so these are the things that are of great urgency for me. And with our uh, Diverse Lawyers Network, with our managing partner and our general counsel networks, 
with a recommended list of counsel. That's what we're going to do. Ben also discussed how he and the networks he founded, particularly the African-American General Counsel Network, have supported the work of legal industry diversity efforts like the Black General Counsel 2025 Initiative. That initiative seeks to have 100 Black General Counsel in the Fortune 1000 by 2025. It was founded by April Miller Boyce, General Counsel with Eaton Corp., and Ernest Tuckett, Associate General Counsel with Verisign. Uh, Ernest Tuckett and April Miller Boyce have this General Counsel 2025 initiative, and uh, we'd like to get 100 uh, Black GCs in the Fortune uh, 1000 by uh, 2025. I think we're around 60 or thereabouts now. And... Uh, They've done a remarkable job. Well, our network helped uh, get that group organized and supports that group. Ben also discussed being tapped to identify candidates for the federal courts amid the Biden administration's push to put forth nominees. There are opportunities in government, and uh, we'll see hopefully greater diversity on the bench, federal and state, and we're seeing some of that. And working with others, again, I have been involved in helping to identify candidates. I recall sending, oh, geez, over 60 names of uh, black women for federal judgeships, and I was told about 60% of them will become federal judges, and a number of them already have. So if we can just get the United States Senate to move a little faster, or maybe move at all, uh, some of these very deserving and able women will have a chance. To date, 40 of the Biden administration's judicial nominees, many of them diverse, have already been confirmed. That's according to a December 27th Slate Magazine story by Mark Joseph Stern. Along with his efforts to help diversify the federal judiciary, Ben said he'll continue his leadership roles on several nonprofit and corporate boards once he retires. So, I was on the board for many years of the Legal Council for Legal Diversity, headed by Robert Gray, former ABA president. And here we have general counsel managing partners who are pushing for change. We've had um, close to 10,000 lawyers go through that program. And so we think that's been a great change. And all credit to our board and to Robert for what they have done and our various members. I'm leaving that board. I was active um, with the Minority Corporate Council Association and their terrific leader, Gene Lee. Uh, but there are three things I hope to continue. I, I am going to uh, stay with the Environmental Law Institute where I've been the chair for five years now. And we're bringing diversity to environmental law. We want to bring the rule of law to environmental issues across, around the world. We want to address climate change. We want to address climate justice and environmental justice. And um, so I've invested time there, again, working with others. We uh, teach environmental law, environmental justice uh, at the Howard Law School. And seven of our students are going to be working for the Environmental Law Institute. And we found funding for those Howard Law students. So they'll have that exposure and that opportunity, and they are doing amazing work. I also work uh, with others on the DC Bar Foundation 
In addition to the generosity of lawyers, the District of Columbia government historically has given us about $11 million. This year, uh, Mayor Bowser and our council upped that to $22 million. And that money is going to go to legal groups who serve the poor, uh, who serve the indigent. And now, you know, coming out of this very difficult time of the pandemic, people need those legal services. And so, so that's important. And um, um, I'm also on our Judicial Nomination Commission. So we choose our judges for the DC, DC Superior Court and DC Court of Appeals. And I have six wonderful colleagues on the board where uh, it's led by Judge Emmett Sullivan, who's been the judge of about just everything in the District of Columbia. And, uh, and we've found some amazing people willing to serve as judges and, you know, uh, jurists make all the difference and because they're the ones that establish the respect for the law, the integrity of the process is in their hands. And then in terms of uh, um, my for-profit board service, I'm the lead director for the Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, the quiet company. Very proud of Northwestern Mutual. We're making significant commitments in Milwaukee uh, to help with education of children in the inner city there. We have other projects uh, targeted to helping minority business people. But we also believe our basic goal of building wealth is important uh, for all families, including black families. And so very proud of that. Ben also chairs the Audit Committee for Pacific Gas and Electric. In addition to his work on that board and others, he says that in retirement, he plans to keep teaching his students at the Howard University School of Law. We are the major utility in Northern California. And, uh, and again, working with a terrific executive team and a, a terrific board, we are addressing challenges. We have a critical role to play in climate change with respect to electric vehicles, uh, with respect to uh, renewable energy. And, um, and as we know, climate is impacting forest fires out there in the Pacific Northwest. And so it's important work and I'm very proud of that. And last but not least, I just recently joined the board of APCO Worldwide. And very talented uh, people who help bring solutions uh, for business and for governments all around the world. And uh, where critical thinking is essential and, uh, and finding um, solutions to problems is, is a premium. And we have a terrific leader there, Marjorie Krauss, and she asked me to join and I was uh, flattered and thrilled to join. And, and I'll still teach my students at the Howard Law School. And I love my students there. They're entrepreneurial. They're really smart. And, uh, and they're determined to make a difference. In retirement, Ben said he plans to continue his conversations with law students at schools across the country. I hope so. You see, because you talked about perhaps being a mentor to senior lawyers and young lawyers, but I want to touch young people who are in law school. Who, who are thinking about what they want to do with their careers and where they wish to share their talents. And periodically, I, um, working with others, uh, we would go up to Howard University each year and speak to undergrads 
who are interested in the law. And I'm so thrilled to see what so many of these young people are doing. And, and, uh, and so again, uh, I think I've spoken at about 15 different law schools across the country and I'll go wherever they'll have me. And, uh, and the message is the same everywhere, the law and using it to serve uh, people and make our society better and stronger. Awesome. In addition to all of your many well-deserved laurels, uh, your your service on board, your service at the for, at the firm. I know that family is also very much at the core of who you are um, and your story. And you talk often about you and your wife meeting at Harvard Law and how you all supported each other uh, through the years, particularly through those early years when you were both kind of feeling out, you know, being the only, um, in your case, the only black partner at Beverage and Diamond. In her case the first Black woman partner at Sidley Austin. Tell us about how her support and how your mutual support of each other um, has helped um, your your success. Well, uh, I'm so proud of my wife, Miranda. Uh, she grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She grew up on the Hill. And uh, when I uh, first met her parents, you know, uh, we had been dating. And so I uh, went to Pittsburgh to ask for her hand in marriage. And her father told me a story. Uh, her father did demolition work, construction work. He was a very powerful man, physically powerful man. And uh, he talked about coming in late one night after working an extra shift. And uh, Marinda, my wife, was on the floor, books strewn everywhere, legs splayed everywhere, doing her homework. And then when he came down the steps at five in the morning to get there for his construction job, she was asleep, still on that same floor, books everywhere. So when he told that story, I wanted to cheer Lisa, just like I was at a ball game, you know? And so uh, so my wife had a, has always had this determination. And like mother's uh, great belief, she raised our daughter, Rachel, and um, believed in Rachel, supported her. And, and we are very proud of Rachel, who's active in diversity efforts of her own as a diversity director at the Oric Law Firm. But but when my wife and I started, you know, we were the first or the only at our Atlanta area law firms. There weren't others who could kind of explain the process, the rules of engagement. And we would learn, we would come home and, and teach uh, what the other might have known and uh, might have learned that day uncertain if what if we learned it the right way but we'd learned it and um so that's what i saw and, and uh, uh my wife was a terrific trial lawyer i saw her cross-examine the president of a of um, one of the major communications companies in the early antitrust litigation of the 1980s and uh it was withering cross-examination and i kind of Felt a little sorry for that CEO. <laughs> I knew what he was going to get, uh, but uh, but she's been enormously supportive of me. Uh, there's no way that um, I would have the privilege of doing the things that I've done without her support, and it's been unwavering. And uh, and I like to think of us as a good team, mm -hmm. and uh, I hope I've supported her half as much as she has supported me. 
As you can hear, family is at the core of who Ben Wilson is. We spent a few minutes talking about the lessons that he plans to share with his infant grandson, Cameron. You, you mentioned your daughter, Rachel, and I know I, I have I have uh, inside information, but I know that you recently had a grandson. Yeah. Tell us about how that, that new role has been and what will you tell him about what's possible and the way that your parents uh, told you? Well, it's fascinating. I uh, He's a cute little guy, and I know I'm extremely prejudiced, but uh, we are so grateful. He's inquisitive, and when we... Uh, walk him around the house. He's looking at the art. He enjoys being stimulated. And uh, and I think I will tell him the same thing that my parents taught us, which was there's no limit to what you could be, that preparation was the key to success. And, um, and, and resilience is the most important human quality inevitably there will be setbacks, there will be losses, and sometimes life is unfair. But the the great measuring stick is what do we do, as Dr. King would say, in the time of difficulty, in the time of challenge, where do we stand? And that's really the way uh, our, my parents raised me and my wife's parents raised her. And, and that's what I will uh, uh, share um, with our grandson, and uh, my mother-in-law said that when I, when my wife was born, she prayed for a healthy baby and a leader of the people. And so the other day, we dedicated little Cameron, and uh, my uh, sister-in-law, who's a lawyer and a minister, dedicated the baby, and uh, we all said a prayer. And they asked me what I prayed for, and I said, "Well, I'm like my mother-in-law. I prayed for a leader of the people." and uh, and uh, I think um, real leadership is about service. And I hope that if we can uh, impart that with Cameron, there's, there are no limits for him. No awesome. limits whatsoever. Awesome. Um, I want to, um, two final questions for you, and then feel free to share anything else. This has been really great. Um, I want to take you back to when you started as a lawyer, and this is 1976, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's okay. Right. So your first job out of out of uh, law school is at King and Spalding, and right. then till now, you know, being the uh, retiring, highly thought of chair. Um, what are some of the positive changes that you've seen in the profession, and and you know, from from those bookend uh, marks, so to speak. Well, I can tell you that when I started, there was a, uh, in the private practice of law, there was a dearth of black uh, partners. There weren't many black general counsel. We had Otis Smith, who was a general counsel at General Motors back then. But these were very, very rare uh, exceptions. And, um, and so I think our horizons were limited. And yet, uh, the thought of my classmates in law school and law schools across the country was that we wanted, uh, we were still trying to prove something, and we wanted to prove that uh, we could succeed in this profession. And what um, has been exciting is to see the varied uh, ways that people have achieved and succeeded 
from the nonprofit world to the public interest world. Um, and it's, it's really quite amazing. And uh, uh, if you think about years ago, you know, you had Thurgood Marshall and Jack Greenberg, but then you had Elaine Jones, who was a contemporary of mine. And now we have Michelle Eiffel, and we have others who are coming. So, uh, you know, it's, um, um, uh, our famous poet wrote, and still they rise, Maya Angelou. And, and so that's what I am excited about, is that there are these black women and black men who are still coming along. But I'm also encouraged that I see others uh, who are, who are investing in the concerns of of uh, of the poor and of minorities, of people who don't look like them. So when you go on university campuses these days, students want a diverse experience. And so it's not just the black students that are insisting upon that, but there are white students who are insisting upon that. When uh, the demonstrators in um, Lafayette Park were assaulted, I was so thrilled to see this next generation of lawyers in my firm who were uh, genuinely eager and excited, and not just my firm, 50 other firms in representing those demonstrators, had a young man who uh, was responsible for writing the historical section of um, of our brief on behalf of one of our demonstrators. And he was talking about uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1866, and he was talking about uh, uh, the absence of rights in a Reconstruction era. And of course, I'm a big, I'm a wannabe historian, but I was so thrilled to see this young 25, 26-year-old person as excited about it as I was, but even more importantly, willing to use his knowledge to address a current problem. So to me, these are the encouraging signs. And, um, but I would like to tell you one story, if I might. And it's a story of, of my great, great, I think it's at least three greats, maybe four, grandmother. And um, we uh, had, we were doing our family history and, and uh, I have a nephew who had done this research and I thought the interesting person would be this, uh, great-grandfather who joined the Union Army near the end of the war. And he was interesting. But the really interesting person was this great-great-great-grandmother who was born in Loudoun County, Virginia in 1806. And her father was a slave, and her mother was the sister of the slave owner's wife. So, So that I don't speak in too obscure a way, his father was black and her mother was white. And uh, no doubt embarrassed by the birth of this child. And once her racial identity became revealed at age two or three, uh, the uncle of the mother sold the child into slavery in Kentucky. Well, in Virginia, up until 1660, your rights were based upon the rights of your father. And if your father was free, that meant you were free. But then Slave owners decided to have children with slave women, and they wanted to keep those children as property. So Virginia changed the law, and your rights were based upon the rights of your mother. 
but because this child's mother was free and white, it meant that the child should have been free. Somehow, uh, she goes from Bardstown, Kentucky to Pendleton County, Falmouth, Kentucky in 1824. At age 17, she finds a lawyer to bring a lawsuit on her behalf. And she argues, uh, makes the argument about her mother's parentage and says that she could not be a slave under Virginia law. And the court rules in her favor, but because a man had paid good money for her, determined she'd have to work off that debt. In the intervening period, she marries and has five children. And but then her owner says, but I don't care what the court said, I'm not abiding that order. She commences commences a second suit. She saves enough money to purchase her husband, who was a slave. And in the following year, 1847, she wins her case. And not only is she free, Lisa, but all 10 of her children are free. And this woman's name was Charity Southgate. And her, what's really remarkable about Charity, she lived along the Licking River, which fed into the Ohio. And as you know, from Uncle Tom's cabin forward, uh, you cross the Ohio to across uh, the Ohio River into freedom. But she chose to stay in slave Kentucky. And why was that? We believe she was very active in the Underground Railroad. So this woman who brought not one lawsuit, but two, to gain her freedom years before the Civil War, uh, risked it all to help others gain what she had earned in court. So that's a remarkable spirit. A woman in the 18th century, early first half of the 18th century, acting in defense of her own life and the life of her children and her family. So to me, that's a powerful, story and a powerful testimony. And as proud of it as I am, again, it's not unique to my family, your family, many other families have these stories just as uh, impactful, if not more. And we need to talk about them. But I think the main point here is her resilience, her spirit, and she bought her husband's freedom. She must have loved that man. And she worked 10 years and then she was steadfast and constant in her resolve to stick with the litigation that brought freedom to her entire family. So I admire that spirit. I hope in a small way I have some uh, spirit that's anything like that. I just think it, it, it makes all the difference. And so, so Lisa, I want to thank you for this time today. As you can tell, Ben Wilson is a leader very much inspired by history, by those ancestors who have gone before him and who left a path. We close discussing his legacy and what he's most proud of from his years as a visionary in the legal profession. When I first came to the firm, trying to think about this, at some point we had two or three black attorneys. Uh, I was the first black partner, but uh, as I leave, and our firm is small by Washington standards. We have offices in Seattle and San Francisco and Austin and Boston and New York and Baltimore and D.C. And But we have about 120 lawyers. But I'm proud to say, even today, 
our fifth African-American partners joining us, a woman who has a terrific white collar criminal defense, criminal investigations lawyer. And I'm proud of the success of my partners, all of whom are much younger than I am. And we have uh, a number of African-American women, six or seven in our offices throughout. We have other diversity uh, within the company, within the firm. And I'm very proud of that. And uh, so it's a different place in terms of how we look, how we present, how we appear. I'd like to think, and I never did this alone, there were others in my firm who preceded me and have succeeded me, but uh, I'd like to think we're a firm where it's a great place for women to work, where they can, uh, not only women, but women and men can uh, have some flexibility with their schedules, can progress within the firm. I'm proud of my students at Howard Law School. And I've been teaching there for 17 or 18 years now. We have a, we've been blessed with great deans. And our current dean, Dean Holly Walker, does a fantastic job. And uh, I recently spoke to a, one of her classes on leadership and with my friend Steve Emelt, who used to be the, the managing partner of uh, Hogan Lovells. And there are bright young people in that class and in our classes who are going to change the world. And I have uh, students who are already changing the world. So when I see them speak and present on programs, I beam uh, like a father. And um, so, so these are among the things that, uh, that give me great pride. But I'm proudest of when someone has overcome a challenge, addressed the unfairness of life, and overcome that. It can be a health challenge. It can be a, a, a marital challenge. It can be a professional challenge. Um, it, but they, in spite of these challenges, right, or maybe because of these challenges, they persevere. And uh, so what I've attempted to do is uh, encourage them, um, coach them a little, and, and but really, uh, uh, hopefully make a difference. The other thing that I'm proudest of is when we is um, when we speak up, demanding transformational change, and it happens. So I don't want to be the part of a board that's not diverse and not determined to be diverse. I don't want to be part of a group that will accept me but won't accept others look like me. And uh, uh, I want to be a part of a group that's going to present the best team that we can have. And some of our best people, not all, but some of them are diverse. And uh, so that that's what we want. And um, and quite frankly, I if I had any regret, I only wish I ha uh, was at the beginning of my career. This uh, generation is going to face great challenge. This uh, climate change issue is real. This climate justice issue is real. And uh, and we have to address it. That's what future generations are all about. And hopefully leaving the world better than where we found it. And um, But I see a generation of people, lawyers, who are determined to make a difference just as much as those 
who did in the women's rights movement, in the environmental movement, in the civil rights movement, temperance. <laughs> you can go back as far as you want to go, and, uh, and at least in American history. And uh, so that's what I'm hoping for. Thank you so much. You're always so generous with your time and your reflections, and we really, really appreciate it. Um, so thank you. I know we could talk for another <laughs> another oh, two hours. But any, excuse. Really <laughs> any excuse. I would love that, and I apologize if I've gone on way too darn long. Sometimes no, it's I'm, wonderful. I'm like Shaka Khan. Once I get started, it's hard to stop. <laughs> Our thanks to Ben Wilson for his generosity of time and spirit and his legacy of leadership in the legal profession. And that'll do it for today's episode. It was produced by myself, Lisa Hellum, along with David Schultz. Feel free to reach us on Twitter if you have anything on your mind. We use the handle at BLaw. Thank you so much for listening.